You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis 37 is where you need to be, so if you've got a Bible, why don't you keep that open in your lap there. And if you were with us last week, you know that we started a new set of sermons called Joseph and Jesus, where we are looking um, at these last few chapters in Genesis, um, specifically Genesis Genesis 37 through 50. And last week, I I made the comment that if I were writing a trailer to the movie uh, about the life of Joseph, here's what that trailer, the words of that trailer would sound like. Something like this. The story of Joseph is a storied presentation of providence. It puts Romans 8.28 that God works all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose in story form. It's a tale of conflict and character, of, of evil and envy, of murderous rage and rebellion, of sexual temptation and severe trials. It's a breathtaking story of a man moving from a pit to a prison and then to prominence. It's a story about the invisible hand of God guiding the visible affairs of man to his good purposes. It's a story that shows us that because of Jesus, the greater Joseph, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the schemes of Satan the plans of man, or by the myth of coincidence. It's a story intended to remind Israel then and the church now that God, our Father, can be trusted even in the dark. Now, wouldn't we agree? I want you to see that last word, that word dark. Wouldn't we agree that suffering has a tendency in our life to make us feel like we are in the dark with God? That when we find ourselves in the pit of suffering, we, we have all of these questions that start rising to the surface. God, how can you do this to me? God, where are you in the midst of this? Why me? I mean, all of these questions that rise to the surface, it, maybe you can think of it this way. When, when we have an extended season of suffering in our life, it is like the dark clouds start to form above us and will not relent. This is what suffering often feels like, that God has abandoned us, that that God is no longer there, that God is distant, that God has turned his face from us. And and many um, Christian saints in history have experienced that exact thing. Charles Spurgeon was commenting once on Psalms 88.6. Psalms 88.6 says this, You have put me in the depths of the pit. You have put me in the regions dark and deep. And that is what suffering feels like, isn't it? That God has put us in the regions dark and deep. And commenting on that, Charles Spurgeon said this. He who now feebly expounds these words. He's talking about himself. He who now feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he, could, he would care or dare to tell of these abysses of inward anguish. Talking about himself, he says, He has sailed around the cape of storms and has drifted along by the dreary headlands of despair. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, he he knew that feeling of being in the dark of a pit. C.S. Lewis, when his wife died of cancer, he, he cried out to God over and over and felt like God was just not answering him. That God has God had turned his face to him or, or away from him. And in the midst of that confused, that, that whole scene, he, he writes this in, in regard to God just being silent, a deafening silence around him in the pit. He says this, what can this mean? 
Why is he so present? Talking about God, why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in time of trouble? Have you ever felt that? Uh, of, wow, God is a great commander. He has got great control of things when it's going great. But as soon as we get thrown into a pit like Joseph did in Genesis 37, where in the heck is a sovereign God now? This is what the old Puritans, this feeling of just the darkness of God surrounding a person in the midst of their suffering, this is what the old Puritans used to call the dreaded withdrawal. When God just seems distant, God doesn't seem like he's there. We cry out to God and all we get back is deafening silence. And and you don't have to look even to Christian history. You can look in the Bible and see the same sort of anguish that you have people in in the midst of their suffering. The Psalms are just laced with this sort of suffering, laced with this sort of thing. In Psalm 6, uh, 2 and 3, it'll be on the screen for you. This is what the psalmist, as he's crying out to God, says in the midst of his suffering. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I am becoming weak. It's like I'm wasting away here. I mean, God, are you there? He says, be gracious to me, O God, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, where are you? I can't feel you. I can't sense you. It's like you have turned your face from me. I mean, my my bones are, are sick here. My soul is troubled. In Psalm 77, 7 through 9, the psalmist says something similar to this. It'll be on the screen for you as well. The the psalmist here says, Will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then he says, Selah, think on that. I mean, have you ever had that moment of feeling like, like literally, God's promises that he has made in the Bible are are just empty. There's no way they could be true if I find myself here. It's It's as if God has forgotten the fact that he's promised to be gracious to us. See, in the pit, these sort of things often rise to the surface for us. These sort of questions about God, almost these sort of accusations toward God. In Genesis 37 today, is I think one of the best chapters in the Old Testament to allow God to speak into that confusion, to speak into the darkness that we often experience in the midst of suffering. I think Genesis 37 is one of the greatest reminders in the Old Testament that God is both with us and God is for us, even when we're in a season of a dark pit. So here's what I want to do today. I want to allow uh, this story to be seen through four different perspectives. So we're going to look at it through the lens of four different people in this story to kind of tell the, the, the Genesis 37 story. So, so this story through four perspectives. And here's the first one. The first one is through the life of Jason, or Jacob. <laughs> Jacob. Wow, when you get Joseph and Jacob coming together, it produces all sorts of weird things. So, so this is through the life of Jacob. Okay, so, so here's where we start in Genesis 37, verse 1 and 2. <laughs> wow. Y'all should do this public speaking thing week in, week out, and see the weird things y'all would say. Verse 1 says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Okay, that that is the author's way of introducing you to Jacob and his family. 
So to go back and just kind of get the background of, of what Genesis has already kind of led up into Genesis 37, um, th this would give us the rough sketch. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and makes a promise to Abraham that he is going to fulfill through Abraham the promise he made in Genesis 3:15 that there would be one come of a woman that's going to crush the head of Satan. So in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham and Sarah, it's going to come through you and your descendants. But here is the problem with Abraham and Sarah. They can't have kids and they are really old. Abraham's roughly 100. Sarah's in her 90s, not far behind. And I'm just saying this, that kind of poses a problem. When, when you have no kids, you're 100 and God's saying, through you, I'm going to fulfill my Genesis 3.15 thing. That, that sort of makes a promise. When you're 100... Your wife's 95. I don't know too many couples that old thinking about baby making, right? I mean, that, that is not what's typically going on. But we start reading forward in Genesis, and in Genesis 21, they have Isaac. Isaac is born to, Rachel, or to uh, Abraham and Sarah. And then you keep reading on in Genesis 25, and Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, have two sons. They have Jacob and they have Esau. And Jacob, his, mean, his, his name means deceiver. And we're going to see kind of in his rough sketch of the history that he quickly lives up to that name. And so here, here's the kind of the storyline, the plot line in the life of Joseph growing up. His mom favors him. His dad, Isaac, favors Esau, his brother. And, and we're going to see this again here in just a second. But it's amazing how the, the seeds of sin that are sown into a family— oftentimes reappear in the kids. And we're going to see this play out here in a second. But you've got a mom and dad who are playing favorites. And so Re uh, Rebecca and, uh, and Jacob, they, they team up and they play kind of a deceptive ploy on Isaac and, and Esau. And they end up convincing and kind of deceiving their way into allowing Isaac to bless Jacob rather than Esau. And after they do this whole deception thing, uh, Jacob is running for his life. He's afraid his brother's going to kill him, so he runs to Laban's house. And while he's at Laban's house, and this is in... Genesis 29, the deceiver Jacob gets tricked at his own game. So he works for seven years so he can marry Rachel, one of Laban's daughters that he is favorable toward. So he works for seven years. It's the wedding night. The whole thing has just happened. And Laban pulls the old switcheroo. It's a bad scene. So rather than sending Rachel in on the wedding night, Laban sends Leah in on the wedding night. And Jacob has no idea. He wakes up the, the next morning thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? That's a bad start to a honeymoon. Wouldn't we all agree? This is not going well for a new marriage. And so Jacob stays and works seven more years for Laban to marry Rachel. And now between Rachel and Leah and two concubines, which God is always going to call this an evil thing, not a good thing. But between those four ladies, Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter. And we're about to see here that Jacob doesn't just have 12 sons. He has one favorite son, son among his 12 sons. So keep reading here in Genesis 37. In, in verse 2, the second part, it says this. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, listen to this, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Sort of sounds familiar. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not, stop, could not speak peaceably to him. To parents in the room, I want you to listen to this next statement. <clears throat> 
It's amazing how the seeds of sin sown into your kids have a way of reappearing in their life. So you see this repeatedly in Genesis. Um, you have Abraham and Sarah. And there is a point where Abraham and Sarah are in a tight spot. And to save his own skin, Abraham is ready and willing to put his wife on the chopping block to give to another man to save his own life. And just ironically, you keep reading forward in Genesis, and and what does Isaac, Abraham's son, do? The exact same thing. In order to save his own skin, he is ready and willing to put his wife on the chopping block to give his wife to another man so he can live. You have those seeds sown into a family that oftentimes reappear in the next generation. And you have the same thing happening here in Genesis 37. You've got Jacob. His, his mom loved him. His dad loved Esau, his brother. And now what do you have reappearing in the life of Jacob? That same sin of favoritism. That, that he has one of his sons that he loves more than all of his other sons. You, you see the sin of favoritism reappear. Now let this be a warning to us as parents. If we are sowing the seeds of sin into our family— you can just bet those seeds of sin are going to reappear in our kids. Maybe I could say it this way. Your idolatry is likely to become your kids' idolatry. The, the lust in you is likely to become the lust in your kids. The anger in you is likely to become the anger in your kids. The impatience in you, the anxiety and worry in you. When you start sowing those seeds of sin into your family— It's just got this weird way of reappearing in future generations. And so this is a warning to parents that we need to be very careful about those things that we are sowing into our family. We need to be very careful about that. And, And let me just come at this from a different angle just to reassure parents in the room of this. That your kids do not need to have perfect parents. That is not what your kids need. Your kids need humble parents who are quick to repent when it becomes obvious that parents aren't perfect. That's what, that's what your kids need. Parents that are quick to repent. So you've got that, this favoritism in, in Isaac that is passed down to Jacob, and it's starting to tear at the fabric of Jacob's family. So that, that's Jacob. Now let's go on to the lens number two. Perspective number two. Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers. And and we're about to see this this favoritism in in a father in Jacob start to rip at the the fabric of the family here. Okay, this is what we're about to observe. So let's read starting in in verse 2 again, second part. It says this, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So let me start in just trying to be as clear as possible on this. These brothers are not the victim of their father's sin. Let's just be straight on that. That that Jacob's sin is not making the brother's sin. That that if you're a father in here, you don't make your kids sin. 
But what's happening in this story is Jacob's sin is the occasion that is stirring up the sin that's already in the brothers. Are you, are you seeing that? So, so if you are a teenager and your parents have sinned against you, if you're 25 and your parents have sinned against you, or if you're 65 and your parents have sinned against you, and that has become the excuse for you to sin, that's sin. That, that's never an excuse. So in no way, shape, or form are they just the innocent victim of sin done to them. In no way, shape, or form is the sin done to them an excuse for their sin. So I just want to make that clear before we jump into the next point. Okay, that, that in no way, shape, or form does someone else's sin toward us excuse us now sinning against other people. Okay, with that said, the problem is Jacob did sin. And that sin was an occasion to stir up the sins of his sons. So, so if you kind of keep reading here, this is what we have. We've got this favoritism that is pronounced over Joseph. And it's pronounced over Joseph with the actions in verse 3. That Jacob bought a, a robe or a kind of a many-colored coat. And it's a hard word to translate. It probably means a robe with long sleeves in it. But, but the, the point is, is it is a robe that signifies Joseph or Jacob loves Joseph with a special love. With a love that is richer than the love that he has for any of the other brothers. Like that coat is, is a way for Jacob to publicly and proudly point to his favored son. So if you can picture the scene where jo Jacob would line all of his sons up and he would say this. You see all the, the sons dressed in rags? They're just my sons. But do you see the one in the robe? He's my boy. He, he is mine. That that's the one that I love. See, it was a way for him to proudly and publicly proclaim that. And, and then he, here was the reaction that the sons had to that. Verse 4b. It says, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. That they hated him with, with a special sort of hatred because their father loved him with a special sort of love. So, so you have in verse 4, the seeds of hatred planted in this family. And then we keep going. In verse 5, Joseph has a dream, and he tells it to his brothers. And then in verse 8, you see the reaction of his brothers. That his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are, are you indeed to rule over us? They're looking at Joseph saying this, Are you serious? Have you lost it? Are you really telling me that there's going to be a day where, where your older brothers are going to bow down to you? You're really telling me that? And then it says this in verse 8. So they, the brothers, hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then, if you keep reading, J Joseph tells another story, another dream that, that God had given him. Where, where now it's, you've got the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all involved in this dream. And, and it even brings Jacob into the, into the fray here. So in a very patriarchal, and a very hierarchical society, now he's got not only his older brothers upset at him, but he's got Jacob rebuking him. And, and then in verse 11, this is how that episode ends with dream number two. It says this, and his brothers were jealous of him. So, so now we've got anger and hatred taking on the dark form of jealousy and envy. And then you get to verse 18. His father has sent Joseph on an errand to find his, his brothers. And when he finds them, he's walking to them. And, and this is what you get in verse 18. And when they, his brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
That's what you call a premeditated murderous plot. Verse 18. And then in verse 23 through 25, they carry it out. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. That is a picture of the hardness of heart, isn't it? When you can throw a person in a pit to kill him and have a picnic at the same time, you've got some deep problems with sin going on, don't you? You've got some serious callousness that have grown over your heart. But, but here's what I want you to see in Genesis chapter 37. That in a matter of just a few verses, you have a group of brothers that hate someone to in verse 18, plotting his murder, to verse 23, carrying the murder out. In just a few verses, you go from the seeds of sin to the full-grown, full vent of sin in a person's life. Now let that be a wake-up call for all of us in the room. When we start to nurture the seeds of sin in our life, that goes someplace. When you're nurturing verse 4 hatred in your heart, when you're nurturing, when you're coddling that, when you're allowing that to exist and even watering the seeds of that sin, that actually produces verse 18, verse 23 moments where that sin has full vent and starts to wreck everything in our lives. This is the reason that Jesus is so adamant in Matthew 5 of not just dealing with the fruit and the behavior, but, but actually what's in our heart. This is why he says, I'm not just concerned with murder. I, I'm actually concerned about hate when you murder people in your heart. Because when you're murdering people in your heart with hate, it's just a matter of time before you murder someone physically. It's the same reason he would say, I'm not just concerned about the physical act of adultery. I, I'm concerned about lust. You having adultery in your heart. You sleeping with people in your heart. I'm concerned about that because when you're sleeping with people in your heart, it's just a matter of time before that comes out, spills out into a physical reality. See, th this is what Jesus is saying here. And this is the warning of Genesis 37, that we have got to be very careful about nurturing the seeds of sin in our life. Very careful about that. So, so let's just apply this for a second. The, the truth is, is that in this room right now, there are many of us that are nurturing the seeds of sin in our life and in our heart. Right now, we're nurturing it. They exist. You even maybe know they exist, but you're doing nothing to go at those things. See, what happens to a lot of us in the room is when we think about the seeds of sin in our life, here's what we think. They're controllable. That sin is controllable. It's tameable. Can I just tell you, sin is not controllable. Sin is not tameable. See, we have this view of sin that it's a domesticated animal. It's like a lap dog that we can sit on our lap and put a leash around it and make sure it stays and does exactly what we want it to, to, to do. But that is not the picture of sin in the Bible. The picture of sin in the Bible is not a domesticated animal, but a wild animal. Can we all agree that putting a little leash on a lion doesn't help anyone or anything? It doesn't help. A leash on a lion doesn't keep it from killing you or anyone else. See, sin is uncontrollable and untamable like that. 
See, when you start to try to control sin, there is a point in your life where you realize it actually has control of you. See, you can't control it. You can't tame it. You can't act like sin can just coexist in your life and everything will be fine. See, those seeds of sin that we are allowing to coexist, to to sit in our life, to be nurtured, to grow in our life, that we feel like are controllable, they aren't controllable. See, you've got to be crazy to think that when you let go of sin, it will let go of you. That is not how sin works. When you let go of it, that is when it actually goes after you. See, it's not controllable in those ways. This is why... This is why Romans 8.13 says this. If if you want to live in the flesh, you know what you're going to do? You're going to die. If you want to live in the flesh, you're going to die. If you want to to allow those seeds of sin to coexist and to to, to exist in your life, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you'll live. I love what the old Puritan uh, John Owen said about that verse, Romans 8.13. He said, here's what it's saying. Either you're going to be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. But there is no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. Those seeds of sin that that we're harboring right now in our life, we need to know this, that they are hell-bent on wrecking your life, my life, our life. Those seeds of sin are hell-bent on that. So so let's just apply it across the room. I mean, it would be easy out of Genesis 37 to apply that to anger. That's a seed of sin in our life that many of us right now are allowing to coexist. That we'll coddle it. For some of us right now, and, and by the way, the application gets much wider than anger. For some of us right now, we have developed relationships with men and women at work of the opposite gender that aren't our wife or husband. I mean, you know that goes somewhere, don't you? That those things aren't tameable. They're not controllable. That, that either they are put to death or, or they are hell-bent on wrecking your life. I mean, we could just go down the list here. We, we could talk about lust. That goes somewhere. When you allow that to coexist, it goes places. We could talk about impatience. We could talk about worry. How about this one? How about spiritual apathy? You know what I'm talking about? Like Jesus is just one of many things in your little checklist to do each day. He's just one of many important things that you've got going. I mean, no real desire for God, no real heart for God, no real ambitions for the glory of God, no real pursuit of God, no real love of God in our life. Just spiritual apathy. See, and spiritual apathy is being okay with all of that. See, that goes somewhere. I mean, that has an end point that isn't good. Isn't it interesting that that when you come to, to Joseph's brothers, there's really one of two responses to sin in our life. You can be like them and repent from it and run from it with everything in you. Wage war and seek to kill it. Or you can try to cover it up. I just wonder how many of us are trying to cover up sin today. Like acting like little seeds of sin don't exist. Allowing them to coexist in our life. Let this be a warning for us in the room before we get to verse 18 and verse 23 in our lives personally before the seeds of sin grow into full maturity. Let let this be a warning to us to deal well with the seeds of sin, to turn all of the gospel arsenal, the the, the gospel gives us, all, all the full arsenal of the gospel toward sin and seeking to eradicate it in our life. Amen? That we'd have that sort of a posture toward it. That, that if you can picture sin as a, as a wild animal roaming about in your house, 
It's, it's, the goal is not to contain the wild animal. The, the goal is not to tranquilize the wild animal. The goal is to kill the wild animal. Can we agree that we would have that posture, that, that our church would be a church that deals with sin like that, like a wild animal? So that's Joseph's brothers, and now we get Joseph, our man. And when, when we're introduced to Joseph in Genesis 37, he's 17 years old. 17. He's a teenager. And, you know, I was thinking this week about me as a 17-year-old. You ever had that thought, you as a 17-year-old? That's scary, isn't it? Um, just the, the thought this week of, you remember all those thoughts that you were thinking as a 17-year-old and how they made perfect sense to you then, but how they were absolutely ridiculous? You know what I'm talking about? When you think about you as a 17-year-old, isn't it scary? See, it's, it's when we get a little bit older and can look back on our life that we realize that as a 17-year-old, our brain is working at like half power, max half power, right? That there's just a lot of things that are not connecting for us yet at 17. And that was definitely the case with our man, Joseph. So here, here we go in verse 2. He brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. Probably a tattletale. We don't know for sure, but bad report typically means false report in, in the Old Testament. And so, but we don't know for sure, but he, he definitely brought a bad report. Verse 3 and 4, his father gives him a coat and favors him. And I just want to tell all the parents in the room, that is the last thing any of your kids need is to be favored by you. I just want you to know that. They don't need that added pressure in their life. They don't need all the things that would come around your favoritism in their life. But, but he was favored. And because of that favoritism, his brothers hated him. They despised him. They couldn't speak to him. And listen, that sort of tension that you see in verse 4 where, where they couldn't speak peaceably to him, that is palpable in a home. That is like you can cut the tension with a knife. That is everybody's aware that all of those people hate that person. This is the scenario that you have. Absolutely rejected, absolutely on the outside of his brothers. And, and then you keep reading here in verse 5 through 11, he's got these dreams. And as soon as he gets these dreams from God, he instantly tells his brother. Again, he's 17 years old, 17 years old. And, and so at best, here's what we have, a teenager that's just not wise enough to know how to handle it. Not wise enough to see what that's going to create in his brothers. So that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is he's prideful and arrogant and probably enjoyed telling his, his brothers that. I probably would have been in that category at 17. Let me have a dream like that. I would love to share with you, Ryan and Russell. Let's do this. And so, and, and the truth is for Joseph, uh, he was, it was probably a mixture of the two. Probably a mixture of, of a lack of wisdom and pride and arrogance in his life. But you, you keep going here, and he was sent on an errand by his father to Shechem to find his brothers. And that's where he walks in in verse 23 to their premeditated plot. Verse 23. Now I want to read this slowly with you. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers. Now can we just stop? Brothers means family, doesn't it? That's what it means, family. So he came to his family, his brothers. And they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. That word um, stripped, in other places in the Old Testament when it's used, it's used to talk about referencing skinning an animal. So, so there's layers into that word, right? And so, so here's, here's the scenario. Verse 23 and verse 24 have sights, have sounds, have feelings that go along with it. So it has the sights and sounds of a, of a brother walking into family, another group of his brothers, and then stripping him down. 
Okay, now that's got the sights and sounds of a fist smashing into flesh. Okay, it's got all of that wrapped up into those words. It's got the sights and sounds of a brother begging his brothers to have mercy on him. It's got the sights and sounds of him pleading with them to stop, not to do it, to save his life. Don't kill him. It's got all of that woven into it. But they throw him into the pit. I want you to imagine Joseph in the pit for a second. Imagine you being Joseph in the pit. You've just been thrown in by your family and left for dead. No hope of getting out. No way of getting out. They're not budging. You're begging and no one is listening. And you're not just begging your brothers. In that moment, you're begging God, please help. And there's absolute silence. No one's helping. No one's moving. No one's coming to the rescue. And all of a sudden, his brothers see some Ishmaelite traders, and they lift him out just in time for him to hear them close the deal on selling him into slavery. So however bad the pit was, slavery just got worse. And you have Joseph riding in a caravan to Egypt, a culture he didn't know, a language he didn't know, a people he didn't know, as a slave. Now can you just feel the tangible, oh my goshness of that moment? I mean, can you feel the despair and the darkness that would have been settling over Joseph's life as he not only begged his brothers, as he begged God to answer him, but no help came. That's Joseph in our story, isn't it? This is Genesis 37 and Joseph's life. One more perspective. One more perspective is God's perspective. In Genesis 37, here's what we've got happening. We've got Joseph in a pit in Dothan. Now, there's another place that Dothan surfaces in the Bible. I don't know if you remember this, but it's in 2 Kings chapter 6. So Genesis 37 is not the only time we hear of Dothan, this place Dothan. So Genesis 37, Joseph is in a pit in Dothan. But in 2 Kings 6, we've got Elisha, and he's in his own proverbial pit. So Elisha um, is sleeping one night. And the Syrian army is upset at Elisha. Um, Elisha. Elisha has a way of knowing every move the Syrian army is about to make. And the Syrian commander finds out that it's Elisha who's giving the goods and spilling the goods. And so he comes and he's going to try to kill Elisha. So it says, the Bible says that the Syrian commander sent a great army and they have the city that Elisha is in surrounded. An army around the city. Elisha and his servant wake up the next morning and the servant goes outside to an army that surrounded the city in in an effort to try to kill them. And the servant looks up and is like, we're dead. There there is no hope here. It is over. And in that moment, as he is is saying that to Elisha, here's what Elisha says. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Kings 6, this is 17 and 18. In that moment of the servant, yeah, we're we're outnumbered. It's not looking good. I think we're, we're done here. In their proverbial pit, here's what Elisha says. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. 
Now that's the sort of deliverance while I'm in the pit that I want, isn't it? That we're in the pit and we pray and God immediately in our time and in our way sends an army and we're good. We're saved. We're delivered. We're rescued. That is the sort of deliverance that I'm signing up for. That is the sort of deliverance that when I pray to God in the pit that I want to see God do in the pit. That, that is what I'm after. But can I ask you a question? If, if, we were to ask, if we were to ask the question, is God more active in 2 Kings chapter 6 or in Genesis 37, what's the answer? Is God more active in, in 2 Kings 6 than, than he is in Genesis 37? See, now, if, if I'm Joseph and you ask me that while I'm in the middle of, of Genesis 37, you know what I'm saying? That's obvious! Why are you asking the question? Of course God is more active in 2 Kings 6. God saved them, and I'm getting sold into Egypt as a slave. Yes, God is more active in 2 Kings 6. But if you were to ask Joseph in Genesis 45 or maybe Genesis 50, hey, in which one of those two chapters is God more active? What do, you, what do you think he would say? You know what I think he would say? Both. God is equally active in both of those two chapters. See, one of the reasons that Genesis 37 is in the Bible is to assure you of this truth. Genesis 37 is teaching us that even when we cannot perceive it, God is both present and God is powerful. Let me say that one more time. The, one of the reasons that Genesis 37 is in the Bible is to teach us that even when we cannot perceive it, that God is both present and God is powerful. That, that when God does not answer us in our time like we want, God's silence does not mean that God is absent. That, that just because God's hand turns invisible and we can't see what he's doing doesn't mean it's impotent. That God is just as active in Genesis 37 as he is in 2 Kings 6. That just because we can't perceive it doesn't mean that God is not present and God is not powerful. So let me build the case for this real quick. Why is God just as, just as active, just as present, just as powerful in Genesis 37? Well, it starts in Genesis 15. It's going to be on the screen for you, I believe. In Genesis 15, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, so this is now Jacob and now into Joseph and, and the kids here, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God is telling Abraham what is going to happen as he sends Abraham's descendants to Egypt and what life in Egypt is eventually going to be like. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they, will, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here. His descendants from, from Egypt shall come back here in the, in the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here's the question in Genesis 37. How is God bringing about the fulfillment of what he's promised in, in Genesis 15? How is God bringing that about? You know how God's bringing that about? By, by the favoritism of a father. You know how God is actively bringing that about? By the hatred of his sons. 
That is how God is actually bringing that about. That God is harnessing the hatred of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his purposes. This is what providence means. See, in in their act, God overrules all of their intentions in their act. And, And he uses that same act to bring about his intentions. Overruling their intention in the act, bringing about his intention through the act. The the way God is accomplishing his plans and purposes is by everything that is happening in Genesis 37. From the favoritism of the father to hatred of brothers. And it's interesting, when I read through Genesis 37 this week, it's amazing how many coincidental things happen in Genesis 37 that had to happen for the story to play out. When, When I read through Genesis 37 this week, I just put a P above every one of these little circumstances to label them for providence. That this is God overruling intentions, overruling coincidence, his sovereignty standing behind everything happening in Genesis 37. So let me just share a few of these with you. This is just a sampling. In Genesis 15, this is providence. A man, okay, so Joseph has been sent to Shechem and a man finds Joseph wandering in the field in Shechem. A guy just happens to find him there. It's just, you would think on the surface that's just luck, random coincidence, but it's not. That had to happen. Verse um, 15 goes on. The man actually asked Joseph a question. Who who are you seeking? He didn't have to ask him that. Seems coincidental, coincidental, uh, coincidental on the surface, but it's not. Keep going here. Verse 17. The man just happened to overhear his brothers as they planned to take their herd to Dothan. See, if he hadn't just coincidentally overheard that, Joseph would have never gotten to his brothers. Verse 21, Reuben just happens to be able to convince his brothers to spare his life by throwing Joseph into a pit so he can come back in a, in a few days or, or moments saving. Keep going here. Verse 25, you've got the, the fact that they left him in a pit to die, then just happened to look up and see Ishmaelites coming that they can sell him to. In verse 25, we see that that Reuben happened to be gone and Judah just happened to be able to convince their brothers, his brothers, to actually sell Joseph into slavery. All of this, the providence of God coming down. The Ishmaelites just happened to be, listen to this, the Ishmaelites who they sold him to just happened to be going down to Egypt and not coming from Egypt. That is the providence of God ordaining and orchestrating everything in this story. It goes on in verse 36. Joseph, when he got to Egypt, just happened to be sold to a powerful man in Egypt. His name was Potiphar, who who would just happen to have a wife who would be attracted to Joseph and falsely accuse Joseph and, and have Joseph sent to prison. And in prison, Joseph would just happen to meet the right set of people that would get him an audience with the exact person he needed to get an audience with, Pharaoh, so he could become prime minister of Egypt. So here's all I'm trying to say in Genesis 37. Can you see how that even though we can't perceive it, even though it doesn't look like God is very active, that God is in every single detail of the story, that even when we can't perceive it, God is both powerful and God is present? Maybe you could say it this way, that God's wise and redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things happening in the lives of those he loves. This is what Genesis 37 is showing us. 
that, that God's wise and redeeming love is completely compatible with terribly, terrible things happening in the lives of his sons and daughters. So, so you're saying that, that Joseph being sold as a slave, that, that God had a hand in that. Yes, that's what we're saying. That God was in the details of that. Yes. Are you saying that a family unraveling and falling apart, God had a hand in that. Yes, that's what we're saying. That God is providentially governing and orchestrating and ordaining every single detail of the story. The favoritism of a father, the hatred of brothers, the murderous plot of brothers. Every part of that story is giving you evidence that God is providential that God is active in this story, even when you can't perceive it, that God is present and God is powerful. Maybe you could say it this way. In Genesis 37, the very thing that Joseph was asking God to deliver him from, so aka the pit, the hatred of his brothers, the very thing that, that Joseph was asking God to deliver him from was the very thing God was delivering Joseph with. Now let that give us some perspective in life, huh? The very thing that, God, that Joseph was asking God to deliver him from was the very thing God in his providential purposes was using to deliver Joseph with. Genesis 37 is supposed to teach us that the pain and pits of our life are simply pathways for just like Joseph, for prominence. That's what Genesis 37 is supposed to show us. That those things that seem like evil to us, those things that what we want to be delivered from, are actually God's means of delivering us with. That's what Genesis 37 is about. Okay, now I want to end by addressing two different people in the crowd today. Two different people. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll end with this. Number one, the first group of people, is I want to talk to those people who when you look back over your life, you realize that you are in the category of those who have thrown people into the pit. So in this story, you would fit into the kind of the characters of the, Jacob the father and the brothers, Joseph's brothers, who your sin has actually caused the suffering of other people. And listen, are we not all in that category? Are we not all there in some way, shape, or form? that your sin has caused suffering in other people, that chances are you'll never know how dark that pit was for them. It was interesting this week, just thinking about um, some of my junior high and high school days. Isn't it just scary to do that? And thinking about some of the, uh, the pits that my sin threw people into. Needlessly threw, threw people into. And I've got a couple of just tangible pictures with that of people that I know my sin greatly harmed and greatly scarred them. That I know it threw them into a pit. I know it caused intense and painful suffering in their life. It was interesting, a few weeks ago, we, uh, we talked about the importance of everything beginning in the family around here, that that distinctive and how important that is. And so really it was a day where we talked about the role of parents in the home, the role of the marriage, and the role of the husband and the wife, that whole thing. And, and after that sermon that day, I had a couple of men come up to me and, and basically ask this question. Both of these men were in their, late, in their 50s. They came up to me and said, listen, our kids are out of the house. What are we supposed to do with what we just heard? 
What are we supposed to do with that? When I look back over my life, I see dramatic failures. I see places where sin in my life caused intense and extreme suffering in my family. And what am I supposed to do with that now that the the opportunity has passed? Now that we're through that stage and and my kids are out of the house. And and here was my response to, um, to both of those men. That I think you should repent. And I think repentance starts with this. You confessing that before God and owning that before God and you making a break from those things now and you confessing that to your sons and daughters. For you to make sure that they know that you feel the weight of that sin, that you recognize that for what it was. And then here's the second part of repentance though, is when you look back at your past failures, you're gonna have to trust, this is repentance, you're gonna have to trust that God can redeem even your failures for the good of your family. You're going to have to trust that. Genesis 37 is not just meant to show us that the God can redeem Joseph in the midst of his suffering. It's meant to be a comfort to, to parents, to, to brothers who have thrown people in the pit of suffering, that God can redeem you throwing people in the pit and use even the pits that you have caused for people's goods. You've got to believe that. That is part of what repentance would look like. Not to excuse your sin, not to get you off the hook for your sin, but to show you that God is bigger than your sin. He's bigger than the suffering that you've caused. So that's to the people that have thrown others in the pit. And lastly, to those who this morning you find yourself in the pit. That you find yourself in the middle of a dark, dark season of suffering where it feels like the clouds of suffering are so dark and so dense that there is no hope. There's no way out of it. And if, if that's not you this morning, you probably better listen closely because it's a matter of time. You're going to be in that pit one day. So for those in the pit, here's what I would want to tell you today. I want to start by saying this. The deepest need you have this morning as you are in the pit, dark clouds around you, feeling absolutely hopeless. The deepest need you have this morning is not quick relief. The deepest need you have is not a Second Kings 6 movement of God. I hope God gives it to you, but that's not your deepest need. The deepest need you have this morning is a rock-solid confidence that God is with you in the pit and that God is for you in the pit. That is the deepest need of your soul this morning is to know that about God. See, the the deepest thing that you can know, the best thing you can know this morning is not the what's and the why's of your suffering. The deepest and the most beneficial thing you can know this morning is the who that is behind your suffering. For, For you to know with rock solid confidence that God is for you and God is with you. And from my personal experience, that is the most difficult thing to know and believe about God when you're sitting in the pit. So I wanna give you just encouragement on how to believe that, on the means to believe that, on how it is that we go about actively pursuing a belief that God is for us and with us in the pit. And that takes us from Genesis 37 and the life of Joseph to the life of Jesus, doesn't it? If we wanna know how, how, do we, how do we put on the Father's coat of love in the midst of the pit, This is how we do it. We have to think about Jesus. And that Jesus, a Jewish man, much much like Joseph, walked into the pit of suffering, 
But Jesus was not thrown into the pit by his brothers. Jesus walked willingly into the pit for his brothers. Are we seeing that? That that Jesus wasn't thrown against his will into the pit. He willfully walked into it for the sake of his brothers. And from the pit of suffering, from the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that cry in the Gospels that we hear? And the response from God the Father was deafening silence. Like Joseph, we might feel like God is silent and feel as a key word. We might feel like God is silent. But for Jesus, God was actually silent. Like Joseph, we might feel forsaken by God when we're in the pit. But, but for Jesus in the pit, he was forsaken by God so that we, for the rest of our life, can be assured that we'll never be forsaken. Like Joseph, when we're in the pit, we might feel that we've been abandoned by God, but Jesus in his pit was abandoned by God so that we could be assured of his continual presence in our life. Like Joseph, we might feel crushed by God, but, but Jesus actually was crushed by God. The full weight of our sin being placed on Jesus so that we would never have to bear the full weight of our sin. Like Joseph, we might feel stripped of the Father's love, but Jesus was actually stripped of his Father's love and clothed with his Father's wrath so that you and I would never have to wear the wrath of God. Like Joseph, we might feel that God's hidden his face, but, but to Jesus, the, the Father actually did turn and hide his face so that you and I for the rest of our days will know that God will never ultimately hide his face from us. See, the gospel is actually great news for those who suffer, isn't it? The, the gospel is actually the great news that because Jesus suffered for you, that God is always with you and God is always for you in the midst of suffering. Jesus is the convincing proof that God will never abandon you. God will never turn away from you. God will never ultimately hide from you. He's the convincing proof. But I want you to imagine Joseph in the pit for a second. Do you know in the pit that one of the things that we're very susceptible to is thinking very hard thoughts about God the Father, aren't we? That when we're in the pit of suffering, it's very easy for us to think very cold thoughts. God, how could you? How would you? If you are good, how would this happen? We have a million cold thoughts come about God the Father. A plethora of doubt invades our heart. And I love what one author said. Do you know how all doubts about God the Father, do you know how all doubts about him are silenced while we're in the midst of our pits? All doubts about God the Father, his goodness, his grace toward us are silenced in the Son, amen? In Jesus, who took God's silence so we would never have to. Jesus is convincing proof that in the the pits of our life, that they won't prevail, that God will prevail, his purposes will prevail. And Jesus tells us that, amen? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.